Live from the Merck Park, USA, I'm Tavis Smiley, and you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. All of our socials can be found at KBLA 1580. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Everything at KBLA 1580. Uh, let me uh, invite you to download our app right now at KBLA 1580. Download the app and take us with you anywhere in the world and listen to us in real time, but only if you download the app right now at KBLA 1580. Should you miss us any day in real time, check out the podcast of this program by going to the app, the website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places to get the podcast of this program and listen at your leisure should you miss us any day in real time. But I am delighted to have you along live with us today for the next three hours. You can also watch the live stream of this program by tapping on the KBLA TV icon on our app or by going to our YouTube channel. Let me also invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Real Tavis Smiley and get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. A good show on tap for you today. In our second hour, Ben on Black, the good news about being black in America today. <laughs> with a provocative title like that, it should be a rich conversation when journalists Attorney, star of Bravo's The Real Housewives of New York, and now author Ebony K. Williams joins us in Hour 2 for a conversation about the importance of black unity for both individual and collective success and how we reshape the cultural landscape of achievement. Ebony K. Williams joins us live in studio just one hour from now. In the third hour of this program, as you well know, uh, it remains the domain of the motivator, Les Brown, who continues his Black History Month radio residency exclusively on KBLA Talk 1580. You don't want to miss today's episode of You've Got to Be Hungry with Les Brown coming up uh, in just about two hours from now. But we commence today's show in dialogue with acclaimed geneticist Dr. Adam Rutherford about the dark history and troubling present of eugenics. Eugenics, as you well know, has a horrific legacy, but looms large even today as the advances in genetics over the past three decades, from the sequencing of the human genome to modern gene editing techniques, have brought the idea of population purification back into the mainstream. Dr. Rutherford calls it bigotry dressed up as biology. I love that phrase, bigotry. Dressed up as biology, and I am pleased to welcome Dr. Adam Rutherford to this program. Dr. Rutherford, how are you today, sir? I am very well, thanks, Tavis. Thanks for having me on. It's a great delight to have you on. Thank you for your work and uh, witness in this regard uh, for being such a truth teller about eugenics, and I'm honored to have you on, uh, and I love the text, Control. The Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics, your book. And I'm glad we got an hour here. So uh, take your time to help me uh, work through this hour and understand uh, why we are where we are in this conversation about eugenics. So this is an hour program, so you ain't got to give me 10-second sound bites like you're used to doing. I want to I unpack this thing uh, over the next 60 <laughs> minutes. So let, so, so let me start with this. Uh, let me start with this. Um, I think it's important always in conversations like these to start out with a basic understanding of terminology. So when we talk about eugenics, mm. we'll get to the evolution and where we are today. But when we talk about eugenics, what are we talking about? Right, yeah. So this is this, it's an idea that was formulated in the 19th century in, in London um, by a guy called Francis Galton. And it's kind of an old way of thinking 
but was given this sort of new lifeblood by by the, the, the science that was emerging in Victorian Britain at that time, the new study of evolution and what became genetics at the beginning of the 20th century. But really it's the idea that populations and society should be controlled and improved by effectively by selective breeding. Mm. Now, it is an old idea because it, it, it exists. It's described very specifically in some of our oldest texts in the Western canon. So, you know, Plato talks about it in Republic. He talks about marriage festivals where uh, gold-quality men would be matched with gold-quality women and they would have gold-quality children. But bronze-quality men and women, they would have bronze-quality children. They should be, you know, kept separate. So Plato's writing about it in the sort of third century B.C., and we, that never happened, right? Because mm. it was a sort of utopian fantasy for him. But it definitely did happen in classical civilization. We know that, the, well, we think that the Spartans performed infanticide. Uh, so I don't know whether the listeners have probably seen the film 300, which is definitely not a documentary. But there, there is the infanticide in there. If babies are born deformed, they throw them off Mount Tegatos in, in, uh, in Sparta. Um, we don't we don't really know whether that happened at all, but uh, it definitely did happen in classical Rome with Seneca describing how how if babies are born deformed, then they should be killed. And this is an act of mercy for the bettering of society. So, as far as we can tell, this idea exists in every culture for as long as we, as long as historical records show, and, and not just in the West, mm-hmm. but all all over the world. What happens in the 19th century is the new ideas about, about evolution, about genetics, begin to emerge, Charles Darwin's work. And, and it, gives it, a, it gives this old idea of population control, a sort of, you know, uh, like a, um, a burst of adrenaline, a, a, a huge injection, and, and a sort of scientific, actually, I think, a pseudoscientific framework on which to peg this, this kind of ideological thinking. So, you know, here is a population, here is our people, and the, 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 the sort of the trend is, it's always associated with a, with a view that everything's getting worse, declinism, um, and that it's very closely associated, particularly in America, with uh, immigration. So, you know, there's, there's other people are coming over, or people descended from the enslaved are all having too many babies. Mm-hmm. But, but the, 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 the powerful and not having enough babies because we're becoming decadent. And, and with that comes the idea, well, we need to change this and we need to maintain our power base and the status quo by doing something radical, yeah. which is to, 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 to like, control society via reproductive rights. Mm. I get it. Um, just wanted to make sure we uh, established a baseline here uh, for what we're talking about, controlling society. Uh, yeah. by controlling reproductive rights, and that leads to a sort of population purification. Just want to make sure that before we get too deep into this conversation about eugenics, that we all understand where we are. When we come forward in our conversation with Dr. Adam Rutherford, we're going to go a little deeper now. Uh, now that we understand, uh, again, the, the backstory of eugenics and talk about uh, how we arrived where we are today and, and why eugenics is becoming such a, a popular conversation once again uh, in this country and indeed around the globe, talking about population purification and controlling 
uh, societies by controlling reproduction. We'll talk about what's happening in, in China right now. For so long, China tried to control its population by having a one-baby policy. They're rethinking that now because they're falling behind in population and they're concerned about what that means for their future. So this thing cuts a variety of different ways. We'll talk more about eugenics with Dr. Adam Rutherford when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. We've got a lot to talk about. Good thing we've got three hours. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. USA.com for details. Conversations that matter. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Dr. Adam Rutherford on KBLA Talk 1580. He is a acclaimed geneticist, lecturer, best-selling author. Uh, his book is called Control, The Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics. Um, it is uh, attempting to make a comeback. And so we are talking with Dr. Rutherford this day about all things in this hour, uh, eugenics. Uh, Dr. Rutherford, let me go back to a, a couple of things you laid out in your opening uh, comments, and uh, we'll, we'll build on that. I want to start with um, late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, specifically, and how widely accepted this notion of eugenics was, this notion um, that we can control populations, we can purify populations, um, that uh, we can have one group make babies, another group not make babies. Um, how widely accepted was this, particularly and especially when you're referencing people like Plato? I think of Plato, and I think of all the times I've quoted Plato. I mean, you know, you think about this guy who we're quoting uh, uh, freely all the time. We proudly quote this guy in his writings, and you come to tell us that Plato was sort of advancing this notion. So how widely accepted was eugenics in the early 20th century? Almost universal. It's, mm. it's incredible to think now because it became such a toxic idea, such a you know really poisonous idea, particularly in the second half of the 20th century after the atrocities of the Holocaust and the Second World War were revealed to the world, and that's the sort of ultimate version of eugenics. But before that, and for maybe 60 or 70 years in in the UK, in America, in Germany, and, and many other countries around the world, but those are the three that I really focus on in my work, mm -hmm. the idea is just, it's just accepted. This is for the betterment of, of people. But it's, it's the, the question that sort of emerges immediately out of, uh, out of asking that question, saying, well, it's, you know, it's universally supported, is, well, who is making that decision? Right? Who, is, who is this better for? And that's why I always talk about it's not as being a science, but as being an ideology, because really it's, a, it's like, like, like the academics who study race, this is a reflection of power more than anything, and this sort of fear that that power is can be taken away from them, or is going to be they are going to be replaced. And so, eugenics comes around just at the right time for all of those sorts of concerns that people are having in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century about immigration, about the the industrialization, about the expanding cities, and, and a more visible. Poor in in the UK, the situation is slightly different from in America because you've also you're only what a few decades from the Emancipation Proclamation, and so the threat is also from within, mm -hmm. right? It's the descendants of the enslaved, it's, it's Native Americans as as well. So it becomes it, it, it lands at this time when there's these sort of you know real anxieties about immigration, about African Americans about Native Americans, um, and, and it lands and it suddenly gives people, politicians and scientists and thinkers, um, it suddenly gives them this sort of injection, this, this, this justification. Oh, now the science says that, that uh, 
we need to do this in order to maintain our, our population size. And so with that in tow, it becomes a movement which is so popular that it becomes like, like part of, uh, you, could, you could buy um, shampoo, like uh, you know, cleaning products, which were apparently eugenic. You could buy tonics that were, would promote eugenic health. There are songs and films in, in the 1920s and 1930s about the concerns of, of uh, population decline. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's everywhere. There was a weekly column in the New York Times which talked about eugenics on an ongoing basis. And it's really, it's, it's, it's shared, but these views are, are held by people like Teddy Roosevelt. So, uh, you know, a, a, a really major concern of one of the presidents of that time. Mm -hmm. All of the Ivy League universities were concerned. Kellogg's, you know, the founder of Kellogg's, who, um, uh, so William Harvey Kellogg and, and, and his brother were, were, you know, enthusiastic eugenicists. And then it extends also into sort of more progressive movements like um, Margaret Sanger um, mm -hmm. and uh, what, 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 what becomes Planned Parenthood. Also, uh, you know, keen eugenicists for improving the, the, the quality of people born. And, and to the extent as well, I, I mentioned this in the book, um, not in, it, well, you know, W.E.D. Du Bois is, is an incredibly well-studied and one of the greatest scholars of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. But even he, as friends with Sanger, uh, expresses ideas in order to, to promote his ideas of, of racial uplift which really have a, quite a sort of strong eugenics theme. And I, that's, that's, you know, seems incredibly perverse to me because, of course, African-Americans were one of the groups that was so specifically targeted by eugenics policies. And there, one of the great intellectual leaders um, of, of black Americans is, is there championing something which you think is incredibly damaging to that so, cause. So let, so but, let, any, but anyway, the point, the point is that it's so universal. It's right. across everywhere. Let, let, me, let me cut in right quick because there, there are two or three things you said now that I want to um, interrogate, uh, starting with the obvious for this audience, sure. uh, W.B. Du Bois. Um, du Bois, as you well note, uh, is uh, not just uh, a, a towering intellectual. He's the first African-American to receive a Ph.D. from Harvard. Um, he is the first noted black uh, intellectual uh, of his ilk. Uh, and I hear you suggesting to me now that Du Bois had what to say about eugenics? I want to understand this more clearly. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he was a eugenicist, but in his, and, and, you know, his body of work is absolutely enormous. He, and he's, you know, he's heroic, right? He's, he's, he's one of my heroes. But the, in answering the question about, about, like, how ubiquitous this is, how popular this is yeah. as, a, as an idea, the boys does, does come up as someone who, who not only is friends with one of the key eugenicists in Margaret Sanger and the birth control movement, what becomes Planned Parenthood, um, but he 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 does he recognizes or he he acknowledges um, that there are differences between people, and he writes in Margaret Sanger's magazine, which is called Birth Control Review, and says uh, the quote is among human races and groups, as among vegetables, quality and not mere quantity is what really counts. Now that's a that's a it's a hell of a sentence there, and it's it's you know deserves. Unpicking and and careful thought. There are scholars about the boys scholars who are far far more knowledgeable than I, and I really only only you know touch on on the boys because I want to demonstrate quite how widespread this idea had spread. Yeah, I, I don't think he was a eugenicist, but but that idea within there is is 
has a sort of eugenics feel to it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a Du Boisian scholar, uh, and by your own admission, neither are you, but I've, I've read enough of Du Bois in my career uh, to not believe that Du Bois was a eugenicist. And to the point, um, the quote you've just read, uh, 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 you shared rather, quoting uh, uh, Du Bois about quality versus quantity, I can read that thing a thousand different ways. I'm not sure that one can take sure. from that particular quote that Du Bois even, even, uh, even tinkered with the notion of being a eugenicist, not based on that particular quote. Uh, so I'm glad you shared that. Uh, I could debate you on quality versus quantity every day in any race of people and not necessarily come anywhere <laughs> near uh, a notion of uh, believing in eugenics. But I, I digress, but I'm glad I asked that question. I'm glad you that information so we can uh I, so i can keep du bois not as a perfect human being but i want to keep him where i have him as one who loved and served black people it would never do or say anything uh that would be antithetical to the best interest of black people so i'll leave that alone for a second let me go back though to two or three other things you said i right? totally agree i okay. mean I, I i absolutely agree with okay. you i mean Good. that's my assessment too so all right yeah, we're, we're on the same page I, I, if i'm on the same page with dr adam rutherford i'm doing okay all right good so let me just ask a couple of <laughs> couple other things right quick is is it the case is it is it the case at least to your mind that what Hitler did in Germany, and we'll come to black folk in America more expressly in a moment here, uh, but is it the, the case, as you believe, that Hitler and what he did in Germany is the worst example historically of eugenics, or is there something even worse than that? Um, it's, a, it's a good question. It's hard to answer, really. I mean, in terms of sheer numbers, um, what happened in the Holocaust was an atrocity on a scale pretty much unmatched in the 20th century. Right. Um, but but the, the the sort of policies of the Nazis were incredibly haphazard and pretty deranged. So there they, there wasn't really a coherent ideology behind them. But eugenics and purification of the Nordic people or the Aryan people is is absolutely central. And the science I I, I invented a word to describe this, but the scienceification of that, mm. which is what eugenics is, mm-hmm. is, is is a sort of core lifeblood of what happens in, in the Nazi era. But we've got to remember, though, and this is a bit of history which I think a lot of people are uh, slightly unaware of, the Nazis drew their inspiration, both, both intellectually, scientifically, financially, and legally, from the American eugenics movement. Mm. So the development of eugenics in the States from the beginning of the 20th century was, was kind, kind of a, a few steps ahead of what of Germany at that time, which is obviously it doesn't become the Third Reich until 1933. Right. Um, but legislation passes in um, Indiana in 1907 for enforced sterilization. That's the first legislation on earth for enforced involuntary sterilization. And that, that becomes a sort of an, a, another sort of inspiration to people, keen eugenicists around the, around the world. Yeah. But it's even more specific than that as well, because, um, we we in the development of eugenics in the states, the the funding comes from people like the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegies, and also uh, a woman called Mary Harriman, who was the widow of uh, E. H. Harriman, who was a, a railroad tycoon from the end of the nineteenth century. And up in Long Island, in the sort of uh, you know the, the 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 West Coast aristocrats and millionaires, these are also with the beginning of of um, of philanthropy in America. Eugenics is a big part of that. Now, what, what, happened, what, what happens over the next decade or so is that those same funding bodies, Rockefeller in particular, funds the development of eugenics in Berlin in the 1930s. Mm. The scientists involved in the development of, of eugenics in, from 1907 onwards are also out there 
in in Germany, developing the ideas for the Nazis as well. So this is this really, really clear intellectual and financial and also legal link. A lot of the legal framework that allowed eugenics to be to become part of the legislation in, in America is simply copied by the Germans yeah. in in the nineteen thirties in order to get their program off the ground too. Yeah, I'm not going to say I'm gobsmacked by what I'm hearing. Um, I'm not sure how the audience is uh, is taking this in, so I'm not going to say I'm gobsmacked by this. But it is always fascinating for me all these years later to hear uh, a brilliant uh, researcher and uh, professor and 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 writer like Dr. Adam Rutherford on in this conversation on the issue of eugenics. There are any number of other issues I could point out over the course of my career that I've had conversations about that you know sort of made me made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. But when you listen to a conversation like this all these years later and you hear the role that the Rockefellers played in advancing eugenics, that the Carnegies played in advancing eugenics. I'm at Rockefeller Center all the time when I'm in New York City, right, even to this day. But the role the Rockefellers and the Carnegies played in this, you heard him say Kellogg. The Kellogg family supported eugenics. I've been eating Kellogg cereal my whole life. Had some yesterday, and mm-hmm. the Kellogg's family, uh, the Kellogg family was involved in eugenics. And you heard him say in the New York Times that I read every single day there was a weekly column advancing the notion of eugenics. This is why in Black History Month or any other time, uh, you have to empower yourself and enlighten yourself with information that allows you to have a more nuanced view, allows you to be a bit more uh, cosmopolitan uh, about the world that we live in now. And how we arrived uh, at these spaces and places, but just to hear the backstory uh, of eugenics is um, it's 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 arresting to me this morning and a little disturbing to be to be to be frank. When we come forward, now that we have a pretty a good understanding of the history and the folk who played a role in the history, uh, but to hear that comment, let me say right quick before I go to news, traffic, and sports, to hear that comment that Hitler borrowed a lot of his ideas from the United States of America. And that they came specifically from places like Indiana. Y'all know I'm from Indiana, right? Just to hear that line, that this this starts with a law passed in my home state of Indiana, even though I've lived in L.A. for three decades and beyond, L.A.'s home. But to know that my home state had some role in this, is uh, it's, uh, it's, hitting, it's hitting close to home, if I can put it that way today. When we come forward, though, after news, traffic, and sports, we'll talk more about uh, eugenics today. And why is it's uh, it's starting uh, to make a comeback or trying to make a comeback? And we'll talk about immigration. We'll talk about black people. We'll talk about population purification. We'll talk about the fact that America is soon becoming a majority minority country. And whether or not we can expect eugenics to be higher up on the American agenda, a lot more to talk about and to interrogate with Dr. Adam Rutherford, author of the book Control, The Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics, when we continue on KBLA Talk 15. We know you stick around. <laughs> this is LA's home for progressive talk radio. Be heard. Welcome back to KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tabby Smart. This is KBLA Talk 1580. Glad to have you with us. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. guest in this hour, in case you've just tuned in, is Dr. Adam Rutherford, uh, world-renowned uh, geneticist, lecturer, best-selling author. His book is called Control. The Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics. And Lord Jesus, have we learned about a dark history uh, in the first half hour of uh, this uh, conversation. Uh, And uh, now we want to talk uh, in this second half about the troubling present of eugenics. Uh, Dr. Rutherford, to your mind, what's happening uh, around the globe and certainly here in uh, the States uh, that's uh, pushing eugenics back to the top of uh, uh, conversation uh, in certain circles these days? 
Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, one of the things about studying history and sort of having a really deep understanding of one's own subject is that you can't help but see everything through that lens. And I'm always slightly, you know, cautious that I just look at everything and go, oh, my God, that just looks like uh, eugenics again. But there, I, there is no doubt in my mind that because of, because of the way of framing eugenics as a sort of mindset, a way of thinking about the, the sort of, I'm doing air quotes, you know, like the quality of people and how to improve the quality of a population, those ideas begin to resurface, and particularly at times when populism is on the rise, and immigration is again, you know, a topic that's um, that is is part of the sort of public conversation. And in the last few years, we've seen, we've seen it in a couple of different ways. Especially, I'll focus on the states because obviously, you know, I'm talking to you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, bear in mind something that you said before the before the break. You're from Indiana, where the first legislation for enforced sterilization was passed. Mm-hmm. See if you can guess the state that carried out the most. Uh, um, sterilizations in the 20th century. Mm. Um, I, my, my read of history suggests it would probably be a southern state, but since you're asking me that question, it sounds like a trick question, so I, I would go with a northern state, and I'm going to go with something like uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, so I'll settle on Ohio. Well, Tavis, you, you read my trick right, but the actual answer is California. Wow. Because California, California accounts for about half of the people who were sterilized against their will or knowledge in the 20th century. The numbers are quite difficult to account for. The sort of minimums of 60 or 70,000 people. Some estimates go up to sort of half a million people, but about half of them were in California. I'm going to ask you another trick question, and you'll know the answer immediately. When was the last... Um, uh, the, the last enforced sterilization of a woman in California. When did that take place? Mm. Um, the way things are going these days, I'd say last week, <laughs> but I'm not sure. You tell me. Yeah, well, in California, it was, a, it was two or three years ago, just before the pandemic in uh, 2019. The most recent cases of enforced sterilization occurred in the ICE detention centers all around America. The numbers are, you know, in the 20s verified, but this is very much still part of an ongoing way of thinking of the state, people in the state saying, here is a person, it's women now exclusively, back in, back in the day it was, it was men and women, but it, here is a woman who should not be allowed to reproduce anymore. In, uh, often these happen in, without their knowledge, surgery in prison, and in, I think in almost every case that's been verified as it's been an African-American woman. So this is, is not... It's a, it's a mindset that the, the numbers have diminished immensely, mm-hmm. but it has not gone away. There is, you know, the basic reproductive right, one of the basic freedoms that is constitutionally enshrined is something that when, when the state decides or when individuals in the state decide, they can violate at will. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the reasons it's, it's in our present. Yeah. Since you went there, let me follow you. Um, as you certainly well know, we've had great debate in this country. That debate continues. Uh, but when the Supreme Court uh, and that document, as you know, was leaked in advance of the actual decision coming forth. Um, but it was just a, a matter of time before we were going to be told that our Supreme Court had, in fact, overturned Roe v. Wade. That day did come. Mm-hmm. And so now we're wrestling with the after effects of that. 
Um, can you uh, link up or, or, or parallel or just suggest or tell me how you think these things intersect? That is this conversation about eugenics coming back to the fore again at the very moment, at the very time that the Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade. What's the, what's the connection there? Yeah, that's a very interesting one because it's almost an inverse of what, what actually historically is true. It, it, we talked a little bit a minute ago about people like Margaret Sanger being an advocate for eugenics in the 1910s and, and, and 20s and 30s, and that is definitely true. Um, but in the discussion a couple of years before Rosie Wade was overturned, Clarence Thomas actually used that as an argument against abortion, that abortion was a tool of eugenicists. Now, that is sort of, it is factually correct that, but it's fascinating that that was used as an argument in the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But it's, it's more broadly part, just part of the overall conversation that is very prominent in American politics. It's less prominent in, here in Britain, where I'm talking to you from. Um, uh, but it is about how we control, how the states control the reproductive rights of mostly women is, is mostly what, we, what we're talking about here. And then there's another aspect of, in terms of the return of this as an idea, which is something that, uh, just before you called, just before we went live, I was just writing up an article that um, I'm doing for the Washington Post, mm-hmm. in which uh, I'm discussing the idea that there's a new emerging sort of philosoph- philosophical movement, which is sometimes called effective altruism or long-termism, and it's very popular amongst the sort of tech bros in Silicon Valley. And one of the threads in that sort of philosophy is quite eugenics It is that our population is being threatened. The birth rate for, for many countries in, in the white West is declining. And that this is a threat to civilization. This is their words, not mine. Mm-hmm. Right? And the, the best way to counter that is to have as many children as, as you possibly can. So, for example, Elon Musk had 10 children by, by three, three different women. Mm-hmm. And he has been a vocal advocate for the, this, what is called pronatalism. He said, he said uh, last year that global warming isn't the biggest threat that, that humankind faces. It's actually uh, population collapse. And again, I'm not saying that these movements are eugenics, but they, there is that thread in there which is very reminiscent of the types of conversations that are happening in the in the 1920s mm-hmm. uh, with people like Theodore Roosevelt, or yep. in, in The Great Gatsby, or, or in all of those sort of cultural ideas where you know we are being threatened, and then mm-hmm. you ask the question, well, who is we in this? And it's always the same people. It's the yep. power brokers and not the weak. Now, Elon Musk, uh, to my mind, is dangerous on a number of different levels. Uh, I would, we don't have enough time to unpack all the all the ways in which I think Elon Musk poses a danger, uh, perhaps even to our very democracy. But that's another conversation for another time. But I hear your point loud and clear about how, if I can put it this way, he is leading by example, <laughs> leading by example by having 10 babies. And he's not even done yet, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, there are many people, uh, white males and beyond, who are feeling the same kind of threat that Elon Musk is feeling uh, that we are experiencing or on the verge of, on the precipice of a real threat to civilization. And to your point about Elon Musk, uh, suggesting that global warming ain't the greatest threat, uh, it's what uh, what's happening with these numbers. So let me ask you when we come forward, I want to come directly to this question in a moment, which is how you think this conversation about eugenics is going to be even more spirited, if I can use that word, how it's going to get more spirited as we approach in this country 
that day, which is not too far off, where America, for the first time ever, will be a majority-minority country. That day is coming. It's just a matter of time. There's not much they can do to stop it. But this conversation about eugenics, I suspect, and those who are advancing notions of population purification, population control, I suspect that conversation is going to get a lot more dynamic uh, as we move closer to the day where America will be a majority-minority country. We'll put that question, Dr. Adam Rutherford, when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Interrogating your assumptions and expanding your inventory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's get back to Dr. Adam Rutherford on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm glad to um, have him in dialogue in this hour. The book is called Control, The Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics. So as we talk, uh, Dr. Rutherford, about the troubling present of eugenics, um, you know full well, uh, as we all know here stateside, that it's just a matter of time. We're some years away now from America for the first time ever becoming uh, a majority-minority nation. My sense is that uh, the offing of that reality uh, uh, so close in our future uh, is going to have some impact on the, these conversations about eugenics, these conversations about population purification, these conversations about uh, reproductive rights, all of that's going to be on the agenda as uh, a certain group of folk are threatened by the fact that for the first time ever, they will be in the minority and Elon Musk won't be the only uh, person trying to make as many babies as he can uh, to reverse that reality. What say you about this conversation in the future? Well, look, I'm a scientist, Tavis, and we don't make predictions about the future. Now, but I'm joking. <laughs> I think that what's, um, <laughs> what's interesting about this is there's a sort of line in this whole conversation that is a really tacit recognition that the, the population, the group of people who are in the majority at the moment, don't want to be a minority, right? That's the pushback against this this whole demographic change, which, as you say, I think is inevitable. Now, why would that be? It's like it's an admission that minorities are treated differently, and by differently, we mean worse. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it's so it, it's almost funny that so often this this conversation um, occurs with with people saying, "Well, we don't want it, you know we're, we're the majority, we don't want to be the minority." And you're like, "Well, why not?" What difference does it make? Well, it does make a difference because minorities are treated uh, differently and are regarded differently by the majority. So I think the most interesting thing about that whole conversation is that it's kind of like uh, pulling the curtain back. It's kind of like uh, them going, oh, yeah. Oh, so there is uh, racialized superiority that is recognized here. I mean, I understand the arguments against that. I understand. Well, we, you know, I, I don't want my people to be to 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 diminish. I, I want my people to continue and to exist in a particular way. Um, but the whole concept of it being a majority minority thing, I think, is is really just a reflection of of uh, of, a, of a secret recognition, a thing that we don't talk about, which is that in. In, 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 the, in the West, in the free West, and I don't just mean in America, but in many countries in Europe and the UK, being a minority is uh, a, a lesser state, a lower category of people than the majority, and that that is the big threat. So I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how that's going to affect politics in the future, but right. I do think it's, it's, all, it's almost funny that people are going, ah, well... Uh, you know, that, that's why we don't want to be the minority, because yeah. it's worse being a minority. 
Since you use the word politics, uh, when we come forward in our remaining moments with uh, you, Dr. Rutherford, I want to come to the issue of eugenics and politics. Uh, I want to go right at that uh, as we wrap this conversation, in part because um, we are witnessing in this country right now, and this is true around the globe, but certainly in this country we are witnessing uh, some outlandish behavior on the part of one political party, namely in this country the Republican Party, with the things uh, that they are advancing, the ideas that they are advancing, the things that they're saying, the ways in which they're behaving, even at a State of the Union address, uh, the outrageous ways in which they are behaving. And so when you start uh, listening to some of the notions and theories they are advancing, including things like the Great Replacement Theory, my sense is it's just a matter mm. of time before we start seeing in our politics, in our public policy, Decisions being made, bills being advanced, laws being passed that are rooted in or connected to this notion of eugenics, what Dr. Rutherford describes as bigotry dressed up as biology. We'll get to that before we wrap this conversation when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now. Right now. Dr. Adam Rutherford, we've got just about uh, three and a half, four minutes left in this conversation, which I have uh, been enlightened and empowered by. I uh, learned a great deal in this hour from the conversation. And, of course, your book, Control, the Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics. I want to close on this note, talking specifically about how eugenics operates today as a uh, as a part of our language, as a part of our culture, as a part of our current conversation about race in this country, and specifically uh, as a part of our politics. Um, and this, uh, how might I put it, this temptation that the powerful always have to try to improve society uh, as they have for, for centuries now through reproductive control, through uh, population purification. So here's the exit question. How should we expect eugenics in uh, the coming months and years to show up specifically in our politics? Yeah, well, I think that well, you mentioned it before the outbreak. I think the idea, ideas like Great Replacement Theory, which is this notion that, that uh, the existing population is going to be replaced by others. So it doesn't matter who, immigrants, lower classes, you know, African-Americans, indigenous Americans, whoever. The, the idea that they're going to be replaced is it, long-standing, right? It's, it, it comes from eugenics. It comes from the early 19th century. Uh, they talk about it in The Great Gatsby. Henry Ford was obsessed with it. Kellogg's was obsessed with it. So it's an idea that is old, and it doesn't really go away. I think what we're going to... In answering your question, I think what we're going to see is the normalization of this as an idea in our, in our discourse. Mm. People like the Buffalo Shooter last year... It was specific in his manifesto. Uh, it was um, it was specific in the Christchurch, New Zealand uh, shooters' manifesto from two years ago, and those are extreme events. Right? But I think what we're going to see is the normalisation of this in other sort of public discourse in our politics. I think it's creeping back, and I think the best way to counter it is just to know our history. Right? These are old ideas. They come up every few years. They come up when they're when the temperature is right in society. And I think, you know, it's the old cliche. Those who don't know our history are doomed to repeat it. To know that history is to inoculate ourselves against it happening again. Mm. I thank you um, for this conversation. I thank you for the text um, and for your work and witness down through the years on this particular subject matter. Uh, the book is called Control. The Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics. The author of that book is world-renowned geneticist, 
lecturer and, of course, best-selling author, Dr. Adam Rutherford. Dr. Rutherford, thanks for the conversation, sir. I appreciate your time. All the best to you. Travis, it was a great pleasure talking to you for so long and such good questions. And, and like you said, an hour in depth. Love it. I uh, thank you. I loved it just as much, and I'm sure the audience did as well. Thank you for your time. When we come forward uh, in the next hour of this program, Bet on Black, the good news about being black in America today. Is there good news about being black in America today? We'll find out when Ebony K. Williams joins us live in studio just moments from now after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 1580.